A lot of us are stuck in our homes right now. School, work, travel, all canceled. And since we're not traveling anytime soon, we thought maybe it's a good time to reflect on where we've been. This is a special episode of the Sacred Footsteps podcast and American Submitter. Sacred Footsteps is a Muslim travel website and a podcast that publishes travel guides and travelogues of spiritual seekers. What you'll hear is a conversation between myself, Imran Ali Malik, and Zara Chaudhry, the editor-in-chief of Sacred Footsteps. We talk about the broader meanings and purposes of travel, and we reflect on some of the travels that we've taken. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, you know, as we kind of all try to um, come to terms with this new reality and try and navigate through this global pandemic, as a team, we've had to think a lot about what sort of content we should be putting out right now. Um, and obviously, because we're so focused on travel, we've had to cancel many of our plans and or put them on hold, at least for the foreseeable future. But I just wondered if it's how it's affected you. And I know that you kind of conduct many of your interviews in person, um, but even content wise, is there anything you've decided to do differently? You know, the first week when this started, I was just kind of trying to adjust. But I think now we have to kind of, we have to realize that this is our situation, at least for the for the near future. Um, but everything is changing. And so I've, I'm trying to roll with it and make the changes in my own work. You know, usually I'd love to interview in person and I prefer that. I think that that presence of heart is really important. But but at the same time, I think we have to we have to be open to the idea that we can connect using technology and and looking at the different possibilities that are out there. There is a type of connection and I feel like, you know, having this conversation and that we were able to reach out to each other and and do this even though we've never met and we've only seen each other's work online, I think it can be really fruitful. I guess we'll have to hear the, the whole conversation to know if that's true <laughs> or not. Yeah, so I should explain the reason, the way this kind of came about was that Imran reached out on Twitter and we kind of had a conversation. We realized there's a lot of common ground. Um, so hopefully this conversation will be fruitful. Um, but going back to what you said about connecting online, so recently, I asked this question on our Instagram page. One of our kind of biggest stories every year is our global Ramadan story. Um, and what we usually do is we share kind of people's experiences, people's uh, traditions, different aspects of their culture during Ramadan. So you get to see how people kind of open their fasts or how they worship or whatever they do in various locations. But this year we were kind of in two minds because with so many people stuck at home, we wondered if it might just be a bit boring. So I kind of asked a question on Instagram to see if people want to see it, whether they think we should still go ahead. Um, and I was kind of surprised, but also not surprised. I knew people would say they want to see it. But what did surprise me was just how passionate people were in their responses, because um, many kind of pointed out that for converts in particular, or people who are kind of living away from their families um, or in non-Muslim countries, it's a real way of kind of connecting with people during that month and feeling like you're part of something bigger. Um, and so I kind of, I guess that passion kind of did surprise me. I didn't realize just how much it meant to people or that it was a way for them to connect with other Muslims and, you know, different aspects of tradition. Uh, I think that that's something that I think about a lot in terms of how we can connect with our traditions, but also in this time of withholding, you know, we can't be outside, we can't be with our families. Uh, I go back to kind of that. I had this moment when I first started studying uh, Arabic. Uh, this was like five years ago. Um, and I was studying the verbs and I started to notice that there's these different forms. So uh, form one through 10 is the, is, is the one that people study. There's a couple of other forms, it goes up to like 14 or 15. 
but each form is related to the other. So every word is based on a triliteral root. So there's like, um, for example, like the word to do is fa'ala, so fa'ain lam. Um, and it can be in different uh, form one is fa'ala, and then this form two is form three, form four. So form three, uh, I noticed that each form has its own meaning. So you take that root and then you look at the, you, if you open up uh, a dictionary, it'll have the different forms. I don't know if you studied Arabic or right? I, any... I have the forms of the bane of my life for a yeah. good few years. <laughs> okay, good. So, so, you know, form three means like a mutuality of form one. So you look at the meaning of form one and then you look at form three and you, you're like, okay, this, this means a mutuality. So when I first understood this, I was like, wait. So if I start to look at the dictionary, I noticed that I can I can piece together meanings that I wouldn't find out otherwise. So, for example, the first word I actually turned to was safara, to travel, right? And I was like, well, what does form one mean then? What is this a mutuality of? Form one, safara, means to unveil. <laughs> so, so safara is a mutual unveiling. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I, I believe that Arabic is a divine language. So I took this to be, I took this to be like, that's what travel is. You know, to travel is to mutually unveil. You unveil yourself to the place and then the place unveils itself to you. Um, but if we take that even a bit further... Um, what else can we unveil ourselves to yeah. in this time? You know, this this podcast itself. I mean, you you have uh, you've been an unknown to me, and I'm an unknown to you, and we're trying to unveil ourselves to each other through conversation. It's a type of uh, it's a type of participation in whatever that metaphysical reality of travel is. But also, you know that that idea of mutual unveiling is how I've rated my travels i kind of look at all the travels i've done in my life alhamdulillah i've been able to travel a lot in my life and to the degree that there was an unveiling to the to the degree that i unveiled who i truly am to that place and that place unveiled who the, it truly is to me that's how uh, good of a trip it was i've never heard it put quite like that before but yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Um, but in terms of like unveiling yourself to a place, so are you talking about your sincerity and your intention in being there? Um, or do you mean something different by that? Yeah, um, it's it goes pretty deep, I think, um, the way that I've thought about it, because, you know, I there's different trips you can take. You know, you can... You can uh, go on sort of a tour, a guided tour to a place which I feel like is tourism 101 type of thing. Like you've, you're kind of scared to do it. You need some guidance. You uh, get to go see the sites, see the places. But how many of the locals do you talk to? How, how many of them get to know who you are? Usually that doesn't happen as much, right? And so... A different type of trip you know you're backpacking across europe by yourself or with your friend you know that's that's going to be one of those more expansive things so i think that's really about the more risk that you you take and also the more you have to like if you're not vulnerable then i don't feel like you're really unveiling yourself you're keeping your guard your guard up yeah i mean so and i think about the hajj like that too the pilgrimage it's such an interesting experience. Have you gone on Hajj? I haven't, no. So the way that I experienced it was that it starts off, we started in, in Medina and it's like that Rahma of being in Medina, just that you know, enveloped in mercy and dhikr and it's beautiful and you feel the presence and the peace. And then you go to Mecca and you feel like this is this, this majestic and it's, it's heavy but every single day, as you continue to do the rituals, I feel like it's it's a it's a further constriction, and you feel like oh this was so hard like I don't think I can do anything worth like harder than this, 
and then the next day gets harder and then the next day gets even harder than that and then finally you're sleeping you know on on the ground on, on a road with nothing above you and you're in your ihram for like the 11th day and you're just like what's gonna and then uh, you know when you finish it's just this huge release but you've basically stripped yourself naked and you're just there in front of your lord you have no adornment on you and you are so that you know was an amazing trip and i thought that was the most difficult trip i'd ever do but the very next summer i did a, a trip that was even more difficult than that and and I, and it was and it was uh to a place called guinea bissau um so i went there as a document uh, a documentarian i was going to go film in this place i was going to film because i heard that there was there were these tribes that uh, were converting to Islam, like the entire tribe, entire entire cities were converting to Islam. So wait, where was this? This is in a country called Guinea-Bissau. It's right south of Senegal. Okay. And it's kind of like a no man's land. Like uh, it's it's unfortunately overrun by drugs, drug cartels. Like the cocaine comes from Brazil, goes to Guinea-Bissau, and then then comes to England and Europe from there. Um, it's kind of like that halfway point. It's really like a police state. You know, there's checkpoints every couple miles. So I flew into uh, the Gambia, and I drove down with a small group of people, a delegation that was, there was a sheikh that was going to give the shahada to all of these tribes. And I was going to go there just to film. And I knew that in these villages, there's no electricity. There's no running water. There's no, you know, we don't know where we're going to get our food from. We don't really know. It's kind of a lot of unknowns. One person on the trip had been there before, so he had kind of figured out all of those things. And But yet it was still very, very difficult. So we were actually sleeping on straw mats for three for three weeks I was there and <laughs> there's no we don't know when our next meal is coming the people in the village would cook us meals sometimes we'd be so hungry and they cook us a meal and then there would be something in it that we couldn't eat because we're Muslims oh, <laughs> you of know what I mean um, they didn't know what they were doing like the whole that that village uh, it's very strange for a Muslim to be there because because there's a ton of mangoes and there's a ton of pigs and there's a lot of pigs eating eating mangoes <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like it's like what what is this uh and pigs are like uh, so the tribes are called uh, the balanta and they have that name literally the the the, the, the name balanta literally means the ones who refused and uh, meaning the ones who refused islam they got that name oh, during wow, okay. the, the the Malian Empire, because everybody else became Muslim, but these guys were uh, very resistant to it, and they were really resistant to it because they have an extremely patriarchal structure, where they listen to their elders to a T, and to become an elder, it's not just that you get old; you have to go through something like five, six, or seven rites of passage through different ages of your life. And and they're very difficult. Like one is like you have to stay out in the in in the woods for like a month by yourself when you're 15. Um, the men, and then the men get circumcised at like 35. So it's very <laughs> difficult. So like to become an elder is a big thing. So the reason they're all becoming Muslim is because one of their actual elders had a dream of the Prophet and he told him that you have to make your your tribe you have to convert your tribes to, to bring them to Islam so he's made it his life's work and throughout the country he's known he's known simply as Maulana and he's just 
uh, just beautiful man who's just That's working That's an incredible tirelessly. story. Yeah. So I went to go document that and I had to take solar panels to charge my batteries. And it was, it was unbelievable. We had to take canoes, like wooden canoes. We had to ride on the backs of motorcycles. Like it was, it was really an adventure. So what exactly were you actually documenting then? It, they're kind of conversion stories? I, I documented first the conversion. So um, for the first I documented the conversion just, you know, we there's a gathering places and all of these villages are usually under a large tree. So gather under a large tree and you have all these children and elders and the whole town is there. And they, some of the elders speak and they tell them why we're doing this. So I was just, I was there to document the conversion to Islam, but also I stayed on with two people who were teachers. So they're young, actually younger than myself. Uh, they live in Cairo. They're expats from America and they were, they're studying at Al-Azhar or like the, the sort of off the unofficial curriculum, like the, what some people would say this is the real curriculum, but in any case, they were there to... Uh, they were there to sort of provide the religious support and to teach them how to pray, to teach them the stories of the prophets. So I was, I was really just documenting it from their perspective. And so we stayed on. And during that time, uh, it was actually Ramadan came in within about a week of being there. And it was actually really powerful because um, even though these, these brothers had studied um, at Al-Azhar, <laughs> you know, it, it's some reason uh, where I where where I studied, which is at Zaytuna College, they make a really big point about moon sighting and about about reviving that sunnah of moon sighting. Um, these brothers had never done that, and so for us, like this was like a basic class that we had taken, and we uh, we we taken astronomy, and so I actually this was the first time in my life where moon sighting wasn't a luxury we had no idea whether ramadan came in or not if i couldn't spot the moon oh wow of course yeah so like i went out into like the rice paddy and uh one of the brothers came with me and we looked for like 20 minutes and then he kind of gave up and he's like i'm I'm going to head back. And as he's walking back, I'm like, no, no, wait, wait, wait. There it is. And like, it's this really tiny sliver. I mean, if you've ever gone moon sighting, anybody who's heard this, who's hearing this is if you, if you haven't done moon sighting, you really must, because it's so, it's just amazing how something appears in the sky. They really, they literally call it a birth, the yeah. birth of the new moon. And it's it's just this ma incredibly majestic thing. That's probably um, an experience that very very few Western Muslims will ever have because there was a genuine need, like you you had to go and sight it. Yeah, that's that's what was so unbelievable because we we studied this thing as like uh, as kind of like a luxury, right? It was like you know. Uh, it's like theory though, right? When you study it, it's just like a theoretical yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it wasn't theoretical in the sense because we would actually go moon sighting and we would we do it for the purpose of reviving a sunnah, but not as a need. That was what was so amazing about it. Um, and that's what was so powerful. And I, when I came home, I remember I went and told my, my professor, uh, Dr. Yusuf Ismail, I was like, you know, all of this entire village got to benefit from that that thing that you taught me we had no idea that this knowledge is going to go and be used in a, a new convert community in the middle of west africa that's incredible <laughs> yeah so what did you do with the footage that you kind of made is that somewhere that people can view it or not yet it's uh no it's uh, unfortunately not i mean they're they're going to be doing a launch good soon um, to continue their efforts there, and some of the footage will be in that launch good video. But the docu the longer documentary is still in production. I plan to go back, uh, oh, okay, willing to finish the story because I, you know, it's it's one thing for to see them convert, but to see them go through that process because, like I said, these people have very interesting customs and traditions, mm. and how Islam plays out in that 
pigs are a huge part of their culture. <laughs> like huge. <laughs> Anytime anything important happens, they have to slaughter a pig. So, you know, these it's quite are a big change for really them then. Interesting things. Yeah, exactly. So the the individual you mentioned, um, Molana, so is he still alive? Yes, he is. Uh, God preserve him. But yeah, he's he's still working. He has a small NGO over there and he's trying to he's trying to uh, spread Islam uh, with his people. He goes on radio programs and he travels by motorcycle to different villages, uh, talking to the elders and trying to get them to uh, to embrace the faith. You know, it's nice to hear that story. It's going to sound really bad, but without the missionaries, because I feel like often when you hear these stories, even when it's Muslims, you kind of, there's always that edge of white saviorism to them. Yeah, actually. And I was a bit worried this was going to be like that. Wow. No, that's, that's really, I'm glad you said that because when I, when we were there, I started to, to meet some of the missionaries that were there. So the Catholic church was there and, um, there had been, there had been some attempts by the, um, the Ahmadiyya movement, they have, a. Uh, like a main headquarters in I, I believe Nigeria and they kind of from there they spread out so they had they actually had someone in that village this really really remote village was he was an Ahmadi and his his English was great his Arabic was good you know he studied and uh, it was just interesting because so that was a main uh, one of the main things in the film that we didn't know he was Ahmadi and then as time went on, he started to kind of start to challenge us, and we didn't really know where that was coming <laughs> from and when we figured it out. Uh, it was a very interesting thing, and it was unfortunate because it just felt like he, you know, he had this very, he had an, this agenda. Yeah. And I also was questioning myself and, I, and what we were doing. is like, is this, this is a type of, like a type of missionary thing. And uh, even though even though it comes from Molana inviting us there, um, and it's a, it's a that sincere desire, it, but it also, I mean, that is an interesting topic. But also, you know, just to think that in 2020 there are still places that live that way. That was also an interesting thing about being there in Ramadan, was. You know, you're used to, okay, break your fast and now you're going to eat and then you're going to go to Taraweeh prayer and then you're going to, what you have all these routines around Ramadan. And in Ramadan, you know, we would, we wouldn't know when our meal was coming. So we would break our fast with something simple, but then we'd be like, are we going to eat? And we don't know. And then like maybe like two, three hours later, somebody will come and bring like a a bowl of rice with three little fish on top and then we'd all kind of have to share that um so that was a, that was like a real i mean i just felt a type of um you just have to let go yeah of all of your expectations of expectations and desires and feelings and it was extremely challenging and a couple of weeks into it I was just like what am I doing here <laughs> this is crazy and I started to get you know pretty homesick but something happened to me while I was there and it just changed it just changed me the way that the Hajj changed me before that or the way that other you know trips before that had had impacts on me in ways known and unknown so when you look back on that trip do you feel like you kind of learnt how to have tawakkul or reliance on God as well. That is one of those things where it's not where tawakkul becomes is no longer theoretical. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> There's no other you choice. You have to have it, and you have no choice. Um, and you just you're literally in the in the hands of Allah. I mean, we were so exposed. You know, anybody that wanted to inflict harm on us could have inflicted harm on us. You know, we were just complete strangers in a strange land. So I've had an experience like that as well. And it was also during Ramadan where we were in a really vulnerable situation. We didn't know when we were going to next eat um, or get out of it. But I think that's like the one time in my life where I could say, 
I really had to have thwakal because like I may as well have had it because what's the alternative it really kind of hits home in a situation like that that you have to rely on God but the thing is at the same time it's kind of a deception in the sense that you always have to the the truth is the reality is we we rely on God every single day in in every aspect of our lives it's just that we kind of don't realize it well I, I see uh, yeah I mean I see it as we we never know you know if we're going to have another meal another day like so much of this religious tradition is trying to remind us that everything that happens in your life is a mercy every moment every every next meal every next time you get to see your family and hug your children i mean it's each one of those moments is a gift that once received will never be received again will will be lost forever and travel is a way to kind of solidify those understandings because you see it in real time. Like if we were meant to starve, then we would have starved. But it wasn't our time, you know, for any hardship to come upon us. And and that's something where you're you're kind of testing the world. You're testing the universe. You're testing these things out. Like, is it going to work out? We really don't know. Um, and then when it does, you're like, you know, Allah is taking care of us. Right. Um, even when it seems like we're just in the convenience of the modern world and we're, you know, right now we're in a, in a global constriction on that, that all that convenience. I mean, how, how, how many of us have ever imagined that we could end up in a food shortage or something like that? Uh, and now it's becoming easier to, to understand you know, if this thing continues in this way, maybe, you know, God forbid any difficulty comes upon us, but it, it's now, now we can kind of imagine what that would be like. And it's a good time to, to reflect on that and reflect on the idea that, I mean, one of the things that I always think about this because one of the hadith about the end times is that there will be, there will be a global drought and it's so hard to imagine, but right now you have all these locusts in East Africa and they're destroying the crops. Um, and I've seen similar pictures coming out of Pakistan. It's very strange. Um, and it's, it's just, I feel like we're in this moment where Allah is trying to remind us who's in charge, mm. you know, whether we... Whether we recognize that or, or not, like it's just one of those things that individually we get we get those moments in our lives that teach us those things. But right now we're in a collective global moment like that. And I feel like I've never really experienced that in my life. You know, I was talking to someone recently about something similar to this. I've been thinking a lot about the fact recently that... Um, you know, like the Quran tells us various prophets were rejected by their people at different times throughout history. And even like in the Seerah, the prophet peace be upon him, he like not everybody who encountered him became a believer. And I think that sometimes as Muslims, we kind of look back on that almost in a smug way and wonder how on earth you couldn't have seen the truth when it was right in front of you or how could you not... How could you meet the prophet and not know he's a prophet? But I think that if we apply that into our own context today, like obviously it's, it's in, on a different scale and it's, it's a completely different context. But if someone was to describe this global pandemic to us before it had happened and we were told that the entire world would come to a standstill and you know all these people would be affected... I think that if it was told to us in a way, in a theoretical way, we would immediately see the meaning in that and immediately see it as a sign from God that something needs to change. But now that we're actually living through it, I think that danger of completely missing the point is still there. But yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure if this is making any sense, but I just worry that if we can't find that meaning now, then like, when are we going to find totally. it? I mean... <laughs> Here, here's the thing that, um, you know, I'll take this back to kind of the, what I feel is the greatest spiritual crisis of our time. It's, it's nihilism. It's the idea that nothing has meaning. 
And what Islam did for me was help me understand that everything has meaning. Every single thing has meaning. It's just you who has to read it. And you may not be literate. You may be misreading things. Um, and this is something I actually wanted to talk to you about, about, you know, in your experience with Sacred Footsteps. Because before I kind of got on this path, seven, seven years ago, um, I, was, uh, I was in a Muslim punk band, right? And we would tour the world. I wasn't a believer, but I was kind of, but I was holding up this identity of Islam. And we were playing around with kind of the artifacts of our, of our heritage. So, for example... You know, one of the album covers that I designed was was like this Pakistani truck art that had a picture of Burak on it um, and and things like that. You know, you kind of get the idea. You're just taking these kind of forms uh, that have a depth of meaning and, and but you're not accessing them. And so we kind of took those things and turned them into a type of art. And that art, when we would travel... We would meet people who related to that presentation, which, which, and now the way that I look at that is that it's basically taking an artifact and it's actually an empty vessel and you're just trying to contain, you, you yourself are experiencing this deep emptiness and so you, but you cloak it in this thing that has meaning. So people, other people who also feel that emptiness, but are also attached in some way to those lifeless artifacts are also going to feel a type of kinship to it. And that's kind of the people that I would meet. Uh, so now, you know, kind of like when, when I'm in this other side of things, you know, with, you know, all of the, the networks and the communities of people I meet, uh, a lot of them are, you know, religious Muslims. And I, it's just a very different experience. Right. And, and so those, when we go to, for example, like we go to these different heritage sites or we're trying to connect with our, um, like I'm, I'm from Pakistan, so I'm trying to connect to like those, this cultural heritage that I just feel like I just don't have access to. I don't know what they were experiencing. I can, I can appreciate it on a surface level. But that real, the depth of that religious experience will always be something that there's a veil there. But as you learn the history, as you learn the language, as you understand the poetry, I mean, I feel like you can get, you can get a depth to it. Um, yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, one of the things that we've really tried to do whenever we show a heritage site um, so we do a lot of these kind of virtual tours on Instagram and on Insta stories. Whenever we show a heritage site, we always do our absolute best to kind of give people an idea of the context in which, firstly, the context in which it was built. And secondly, kind of what the decor and what the, um, you know, the architectural styles, what era they kind of point to, because sometimes um like, I'll, I'll give you an example. There was Wazir Khan Mosque in Lahore. We had an amazing story by a, one of our contributors, Shiroz Khan. And he, he did a very in-depth tour. And he kind of explained how the architecture is very different from other buildings, other masjids that were built during that time in Lahore. Um, it has a lot of kind of Persian influence. And he really explained the meaning behind the mosaics and the color choices. And he really went in-depth. And that's kind of our aim is just to give people more than just the surface level, because on the surface, yes, it's a beautiful building and it's, it's wonderful to look at and you'll gain something just from that. But if you kind of understand the context and um, understand the decor and the people who, who built it, then you're going to gain a lot more from that. But then also, you know, you could go deeper still and really kind of try and understand what the architect what his purpose was or what why he made certain choices and with islamic art um as i know that you already know the oneness of god is often represented in the design itself but yeah i think that for for myself personally that's an aspect that i need help uncovering because 
Although some people kind of come to that realization just by looking, for myself, I need I probably wouldn't have understood that had I not studied it. Yeah, this this art, um, it it's. I think it's important for us to make a real distinction when we take in this art because obviously there are we can study it from this academic lens and understand that yes they're trying to point to the the unity and multiplicity like that that was a big theme you know in a lot of the architecture and it's marvelous and when you're in those spaces something of that uh, architect state is is impacting your soul that's what's so amazing about architecture actually is that it's a 3d art and it's meant to it's actually meant to uh, the scale of the human being inside of that building is something that the architect plays with so when you go to a mosque let's say in in turkey uh, go to sinan's masajid you know sinan i mean he was he's showing you this grandeur and you're meant to be dwarfed in it and you just kind of lose yourself in that you know and it's a different it's a different type of experience and then when you go to the if you ever get a chance to go to Isfahan and see the masajid there and see the courtyards you know they're they're all pointing to different things a lot of the courtyards of the Mughals were pointing to uh they were they were literally just uh, depictions of uh, of Jannah, depictions of you know the the different hadith that we have about Jannah and about the, and there would be levels and if you count the numbers it's 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 all pointing back to very uh, distinct teachings of the religion, but all of that is is beautiful. But I I actually think it's really important for us to remember that these were built by human beings. And to just think about like what was going on inside of them that they created these things. The thing that got me really excited about doing this episode was when you told me about your visit to Indonesia. So could you tell us about that trip and who it was you went to visit? Yeah, so this was another uh, trip where I went to go document um, the story that I had heard about, which is... Um, the Wali Songo. So anybody who's from that region probably knows uh, about the Wali Songo. There's a bunch of posters of of these olia, and they celebrate them in their culture. So <clears throat> when you look at these posters, they just look like um, you know typical Indonesian person. They have mustaches along a lot of them, and they have names like Sunan Ampel, Sunan. Kalijaga, um, and they are—they are the saints. They're the fabled saints that brought Islam to the region, um, not just Indonesia, but what encompasses Malaysia, the Philippines, um, up to Thailand, like that whole region that's connected through the water. And these were fishermen. These were traders. These were—you know—they lived in small villages. And uh, the story is actually that these were Yemeni traders. And uh, they came to the region about 500, 600 years ago. Before that, there was no Islam in that region. Most people were Buddhists or Hindus. Um, and so when they came, they, were, they came to do trade, but then they started to get involved in the culture. And... Uh, one of the ways that they did this was through music, through um, these plays that were done with shadow puppets. Um, and they decided to teach the dean through the mean, through the, these cultural means that were of that land. So this is something that I think about a lot because you know, as a, like I mentioned earlier, I was in this band and we were kind of taking these lifeless forms to people and we were playing music and we were trying to have a cultural experience, but there was no depth there. And this is kind of the reverse where like they're taking on, uh, the forms of the people where they've gone to teach the depths of what's inside of them. So it's kind of this opposite experience. Right. And so they, they're using, 
so they would do these shadow plays, which, which imagine, um, these shadow puppets, they have these sort of long accentuated features. Uh, they have a fire and the fire, uh, fire projects the shadow of the puppet onto a white cloth, which is like a screen. And then there's people playing music in the background and, and people having dialogue. So they're actually kind of like the first filmmakers and they're using film to teach Islam. But are they, how are they teaching Islam? Are they teaching the stories of the prophets? I said, not even they're using characters that these people know, like Arjuna from the Bhagavad Gita to teach concepts like Bir al-Walidain, respecting your parents and other things like that, like, things that are just the core virtues which is so strange if you think about it because we we don't we don't accentuate those things when we talk about religion do we well we don't talk about those things as practicing muslims let alone teaching the deen to outsiders um but we were talking earlier about missionaries and this just strikes me as the complete opposite of that um and yet they had such a big impact so I had known about these traders that had gone and how they had, um, you know, like the whole region had become Muslim because of them. But I wasn't aware about the shadow puppets. And I feel like that's such a good example for us today. Um, but it kind of bothers me that it's not more widely known or more widely understood. That's that definitely was, was my reaction too. And that's why I wanted to go and document it and turn it into some kind of story and to, to present it to broader Muslims because I feel like now here's the lesson for us with this like you said it was effective today 80 to 90 percent of that region is Muslim or they you know in the Philippines in the case of the Philippines it's kind of a sad political situation they used to be Muslim but you know they um, think about it this way we when we try to imagine tradition like as western westernized cosmopolitan muslims it's like this whole it's like this very very self-conscious place and like we want to perform all of these aspects of tradition and we're you know we want to wear certain things we want to have dustbees around our wrists like we have to like have nasheeds and molids. I mean, there's different people connected in different ways, but think about like these guys were also imagining their tradition, but they were just connecting to the main thing. They said like, okay, if we have to, if I'm, if my concern living in this foreign land and think about it, like, think about it this way. Um, I, I don't know what your family background is, but I assume they were, they immigrated to England, right? Yeah. For economic purpose. Yep, exactly. Right? So so think about it that way. I mean, these are the same same thing. These people who are now called the Wali Songo, which means the nine saints, um, historical record seems to point that there was actually something like 48 saints. But for them to, they took on the names of the place, the people that they were with. And they took on their art forms and they just out of a pure concern for their fellow human beings, they said, we're going to try to translate this tradition in a way that makes sense to you. So this is really like that idea of Islam is this thing that can take on the the color of wherever it lands and it helps people helps to show people who they really are and and i think right now we're in this moment and we've been in this moment for a long time where people feel threatened we feel threatened and so we kind of clam up and we kind of we kind of just hold on to these sort of empty lifeless traditions and and like forms of islam and forms of religion and and forget the universality of this thing the idea that the universe is like made by a god and that our fellow man so like we kind of try to close the ranks rather than uh and then open it up and that's why these people were saints yeah you know? and <laughs> 
and we have yeah. a lot of work to do. I, I think you're completely right. Um, but I think, yeah, we become quite defensive, I think. And that's when Islam kind of becomes an identity for us rather than a way of life. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, everything you've described sounds like this revolutionary way of doing things. And yet it's what, like 500, 600 years old, um, which is crazy to me. So when you visited their tombs, um, were they kind of located in towns and cities or did you have to go to remote locations so, to find them? Yeah, so all across um, the island of Java. So we started on one end of the island of Java and we went to all of the tombs. Uh, we, we took buses and we would go from one site to the next. And these are, alhamdulillah, they're all preserved and they're very easy to get to. Um, with the exception of one, which is like way up on the top of the mountain. And that one, we had to take a bus to a certain place, but then from that place, everybody had to get on the back of small motorcycles to go up to that um, place. And after we left there, it's very interesting. After we left there, um, the the people who uh, were leading the trip asked us, have any of you noticed that you guys have been singing more like sort of humming tunes to yourselves? And people were like, yeah, I have, I have like raising their hands. And they're like, it's because this saint that we just visited, um, was one of the saints that used music to teach people about Islam. Oh, wow. And he, he used to write poetry and, and, and it was all, it was all about this music that brought people in, you know, and it really, it made it alive for them. It was in their language. It helped them see the world for what it is. It helped them unlock, you know, the to look at creation for what it is and then interact with it that way. And then it unlocks all these things. And then you want to draw closer to God. And when, the, when your submission to God comes from that place, from this really deep internal place rather than an external desire or an external pressure, it it creates something that's just... It's just a very different experience. So what would you say is the relationship between kind of young Indonesians and these saints? Um, are they kind of aware of them or um, are they kind of known more amongst like Sufi leaning people? It's a very good question. I th So everybody knows about them. It's like it's just a well they're well known. But most most, you know, modern modernized folks, they don't care about that or they don't visit them, or they don't kind of, um, they don't necessarily celebrate those things. And so the group that brought us out there is a small group of, of Muslims um, based in Malaysia and in Singapore. Uh, they had, the name of the group is called Embara, E-M-B-A-R-A. -A. And they are um, a group of people that is inspired by all of these sort of Western um, mashayikh that we have. A lot of like like the Abdul Hakim Rad and Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah. Um, and so they, through, through the work of those scholars, they have come to appreciate their own heritage again with a renewed sense of purpose. And so they are working to establish these tours and bring people out there and teach them in a way that they understand and and sort of revive revive that but we're in this moment like i always say this um but like muslims or just human beings like we don't know what's happened to us in the, in the last 400 years with co with colonialism and with like all of the different shakeups of the economic revolutions industrial revolutions like we are all kind of scattered and lost. We've lost our, the knowledge of our ancestors, just lost. Un, you know, if you start to dig into that, you can get, it can get actually depressing. And maybe we shouldn't even think about the immensity of that loss because it's too much. But things like this are signs. And they're, they're kind of like, guides you know like the awliya that came and we see how they did things how they operated in the world and maybe that gives us an idea for how we should alter 
how we operate in the world. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I think for people listening, if you're interested in finding out more about these saints, um, then Imran will be doing an Insta story for us um, about the about the various tombs and how to visit them. But I'm just wondering, actually, like if people wanted to just go and visit, um, like, do you need to go with a tour group or are they quite are they relatively easy to find? They're very easy to to get to. And I'm sure there's a number of guides who would be happy to take you there. I mean, it's not like these places are empty. They're they're well kept. Um, I think they have even government funding taking care of them. They have people that are um, full time caretakers. Um, so those are some of the people that I, I got to meet, you know, the people that take care of these tombs are, they tend to be very blessed and strange and mysterious people. Um, but yeah, you can, it's absolutely a beautiful trip to do. I think, you know, one of the benefits of going to this heritage site and going to any of these heritage sites is just, um, being just widening your just broadening your scope just remembering these people that came and they did this thing and how islam has manifested in all of these different ways it loosens your grip on your own understanding a little bit not that it 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 like destroys it or anything like that no it just kind of it broadens it and lets you you can still focus on all of the things that you you need to focus on in your life, in your particular world, but you are bringing into that, into your world, this sense of possibility, the sense of connection to the ummah that is, that is broader, but also goes back hundreds and over a thousand years. You know, it's, it's, it's just beautiful. I like that loosening your grip. I think that's perfect. Because at the end of the day, you're only gonna, you've got nothing to lose. You're only gonna gain. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, that's what's so uh, lovely, I think, about sacred footsteps. And it's just, uh, I, when I came across your website, I was so happy that someone has taken this initiative to do this because, um, because we need, we need that. We need some place to, to go where we can now broaden our horizons without having to go on these individual, you know, uh, trips or even just doing research, trying to find those things. So the, the idea of compiling them and sharing travel logs and creating a kind of movement of sorts, I'm a hundred percent, um, behind that. I love that idea. And I think what you guys have done so far is, is, amazing work and i'm super excited oh, thank you about i appreciate it. that you know it's very hard the work that you're doing is very hard you know to broaden the scope of people and to get them to to see the virtue in other forms of islam it can be very challenging for folks so i guess i i, I want to ask you about your experience um, why how you kind of got this started and what have been the kind of different types of reactions that you've been getting along the way so it kind of started off when I realized that there wasn't really that much information online for Muslims who want to travel, um, especially if you're looking for information about like the tombs of saints or like different maqams, aryas, things like that. Or even if you're wanting to learn about the history of specific heritage sites. Um, but I think that over the last few years, it's kind of slowly become something that I didn't necessarily expect it's kind of very organically become more of a community where people just want to contribute and just help us with what we're doing. And it's kind of really hard to put an accurate number on it, but I think we've had like maybe at least 50 contributors by now. In terms of the reaction people have had, so they do tend to fall into two categories. So you've either got those people who love it and they want to help or they kind of use it for their own travels or their own understanding or whatever. Um, but then you do have another category of people who don't really agree with what we're doing. I think for them, for many of them, they have their own ideas on what Islam is. And because so much of what we show may go against that or may show a different aspect that you may not be familiar with, um, many people kind of react quite negatively to that. 
I'll give you an example. So last year we did a story on Chechnya um, with our contributor Slahadin Masri. And he went to a Chechen dhikr gathering and he filmed it. He took part in it himself. And for the story, we kind of posted the video and he kind of explained what it was. And it, we got a lot of negative comments for that. Um, in case people aren't familiar with kind of Chechen dhikr, it has a very distinctive style. So there's a lot of kind of stamping and um, it's quite militaristic. But there's a reason for that. And Salahuddin, he kind of explained it in the story, but he's kind of, we've, we've just done a, a podcast episode with him where he goes more into the roots and the history of that dhikr and how, it, how and why it came about. But the point is, there's, there is a history behind it and it didn't just happen in a vacuum. Um, so if you understand that history and you understand the roots of it and why things are like that, you may kind of be more willing to accept it but if you're not familiar with that then it can seem quite an alien thing and there are other examples of that in different parts of the world like you'll find that islam is practiced differently in different places um, and people have their own traditions as well and yeah i think that's kind of become one of our main purposes even though i didn't realize that would be the case well i my question is how how did you get involved I mean, how did you get, how did this become your mission? What was that first travel experience that you had? Uh, I mean, you've mentioned in your, in your first episode of Sacred Footsteps, you mentioned the, the origin story of this project, which is a trip that you took to visit Umar Abdul Hajj, um, a living saint who has sadly passed away recently. Um, but you got to visit him while he was alive. Um, tell us about that trip. Tell us, you know, not just about the rigor of that trip, but what did that mean to you? And why why did it kind of broaden your scope to think that travel is now an important thing to do and to celebrate and to bring to other Muslims? As you said, I, I have spoken about that before, um, but I also wrote about it for the website. So if anybody wants to read about it, they're welcome to do so. But basically for me, you know, like within our tradition, we have so many stories about travel being transformative. So f probably the best known example is of Imam Ghazali, where he when he realized that he needed to work on his ego, he left behind everything he knew and he went on a physical journey in order to transform himself spiritually. And that kind of, that's repeated amongst other, other people within our tradition also. I was really interested in that anyway, the idea of travel being, being transformative. And I feel like that journey did do that for me, which I know how cheesy it sounds. It, I always feel a bit embarrassed talking about it. But I do feel like it changed my outlook in many ways. And this idea of spiritual travel, that's how we kind of term it on Sacred Footsteps. That's where that kind of really came from. Um, and it's the idea that a journey can, it doesn't have to be a pilgrimage. It doesn't have to be to Makkah Medina, but any journey can be transformative as long as that intention is there. But also I would say as a caveat that sometimes your intention can also change because for myself personally, I don't feel like I had the right intention when I set off on that trip um, in Mauritania. But throughout that, throughout the process of that journey, I think my intention changed and it had to change because things did not go according to plan. Um, and yeah, in the end, I feel like it was transformative and travel kind of has the power to do that. But then like you said earlier, um, about unveiling yourself to a place. I don't think that's possible if you just go and sit in a resort somewhere. Like, I think you have <laughs> to be vulnerable to an extent. And yeah, I think you put it perfectly earlier. You have to unveil yourself to that place. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's really beautiful. And it, 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 it really goes down to our tradition is all about intentions, right? We, we talk about intentions. There's a beautiful... Hikam of Ibn Atta'Allah, where he says, Al A'malu Surun Qa'imun, that actions are lifeless forms, but uh, it's Arwahuha, it's souls, the soul of the, or the spirit of that action is Ikhlas Fiha, like 
sincerity in it. So when you have sincerity in your actions, now these forms take life and they take root. So in the same sense of bringing intentionality into any trip that you do, um, you will find what you kind of put into it. So there's also that hadith about the hijra, right? Like about uh, the, the the Sahabi who who didn't who who did hijra because he wanted to get married. So like he gets the reward of like that's what he gets. That's his reward because that was his intention, right? In this time where we can't travel, it's a really good time to practice. It's a really good time to practice uh, um, because make an intention and go out on a walk and try make an intention to go appreciate Allah's creation then go and if you see flowers on that walk go and appreciate the flowers appreciate the unity and diversity you know look at the look at at the stars if you can look at all these things i mean it's we can do a lot um and just once you get into that habit of setting out on an intentional journey, even if it's just a walk around your neighborhood, it can lead to bigger, bigger, bigger travels, you know, in the future. I think that rounds us off quite nicely. Thank you so much, Imran. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope to hope to do more episodes with you again in the future. Yeah. This has been a special episode of American Submitter in the Sacred Footsteps podcast. It was produced by Zara Chaudhary and myself, Imran Ali Malik. Follow them at sacredfootsteps.org and at sacredfootsteps on Instagram. If you're interested in hearing parts of the conversation that didn't make the cut, please consider becoming a patron of our podcast to get access to Submitter Circle, a special extended bonus podcast from us. Sign up at patreon.com submitter.